Hello and welcome to another episode of the Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Wendy. And I'm Trish. And we don't have any updates for you today, so we're going to jump right into it. Happy New Year, everybody. This is our first episode of 2023. We hope you all had a wonderful holiday season and you're ready for some true crime to get your mind off of the holiday hubbub. That's right. So we want to thank you all, like Wendy said, Welcome back for this new year with us. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can do so through our website at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find all of our show notes, all of the resources we use to bring you our episodes, and also our contact page. And also, if you can look us up on Instagram at Criminal Pod, Facebook, Criminal Discourse Podcast, YouTube, Twitter. As of now, that's it. Who knows? Maybe we'll branch out TikTok? I don't know. New Year, new us. Maybe also you have a New Year's resolution of listening to more true crime. You could listen to more criminal discourse podcasts. You could recommend it to a friend. They might like it. We decided to do a case today from Australia. This is my first Australia case, and I'm very excited to entertain our Australia listeners with something in their own backyard for once. Yes. Shall we? Shall. All right. This is out of Queensland, so I had to do my own Australia research. It does have some American elements to it. We're going to talk a little bit about the KKK, which I had no idea had international connections. Yeah, I I always thought it was an American thing. Yeah. Well, this revolves around the KKK and some issues between brothers. It's actually something that I found on, on Reddit. So let's get right into it. This case begins with Robert Rowlingson discovering his teenage brother Anthony's connections to the Ku Klux Klan, and then he threatened to report Anthony to the police. In response, Anthony said he, quote, examined the problem at hand and felt that the murder of Robert was the most viable solution. I did it because I had to. On July 15, 2007, Anthony executed his brother to protect his secret affiliation with the KKK. His teacher, the Klan leader who mentored him, helped him dispose of the body of his brother. The teacher has been a free man since 2013, and Anthony may be released this year. This is the Queensland, Australia case of the Rowlingson brothers and the deadly consequences of extreme ideology coupled with young impressionable minds. So Robert and Anthony Rowlingson grew up in Pittsworth, which is a sleepy pastoral town renowned for its animal agriculture and high quality grain production. It's about two hours west of Brisbane and is part of the Darling Downs farming region of rolling hills and pastures rich with natural resources. It sounds beautiful, looks beautiful. Pittsworth is within the Toowoomba local government area of Darling Downs, and this is all in the southeastern portion of the state of Queensland. That's the northeastern corner of Australia. That includes Brisbane, the Gold Coast, the Great Barrier Reef, all those gorgeous things. In 2007, the quiet rural community of Pittsworth had just about 3,000 residents. It's a small place. And that included 19-year-old Robert Rowlingson and his 16-year-old brother, Anthony. The brothers were destined to become the fourth generation on their family's grain and cattle farm, or at least that's what their parents, John and Wendell, had hoped. The Rowlingson home was a stable, loving one, but that seemed to benefit one son more than the other. Robert was an outdoorsman and an apprentice motor mechanic who was a natural with farm machinery. 
not earn him a favored spot with his father working on the farm. On the other hand, Anthony preferred indoor activities, and his parents referred to him as nocturnal for his habit of staying up all night playing video games. There's nothing wrong with this, but it started to create a rift between the brothers. Robert was popular at school and around town. A close friend and schoolmate described him as a ball of laughter. A family friend said he was one of those lovely, bigger, softer, wonderful young men, a big teddy bear type of a boy, and everybody liked him. Anthony had a social life, but it wasn't quite the same. He was disruptive in school. He was written up for things like carrying a walking stick disguised as a sword on the school playground, or not disguised as a sword, but disguising a sword. So he took a sword to school and disguised disguised it as a walking stick. Oh, so like inside the walking stick. (laughs) Yes, I worded that weird. He would carry that on the school playground. And then he would also try to sell homemade bombs to other students. I can see how that could get you in trouble. That would. Anthony's parents, teachers, his doctors, they were all concerned that his obsession with weapons and violent media was unhealthy, but he wasn't necessarily violent with others. And it was easy to dismiss because he was also getting good grades. He was excelling in cadets, with it, which is, I think, a military type group that Australian youth go into. So like the ROTC. A, a little bit like that, or like an elevated Boy Scouts, maybe. But It was turning into more than an obsession for Anthony. And in the weeks before murdering his brother, he had made a hit list of seven people to kill after he had killed his brother. So he was already planning this. The hit list included five students, friends of his brothers, bullies from his past, and it also included his two parents. Around this same time, so again, the weeks leading up to Robert's murder, Robert found Anthony standing over him with a rifle. When he confronted Anthony... Anthony just shrugged and walked away. He didn't explain it. One weekend before the murder, Robert caught Anthony watching him through a rifle scope, like from a window of the home. He told a friend and co-worker about the tense situation at home, saying, Anthony will never stop hating me. So this sibling rivalry was escalating. No one predicted that Anthony's simmering anger would reach the tragic boiling point that it did. He had long felt that his older brother was overbearing, stubborn, and arrogant, and the laptop incident would make Robert a threat to Anthony's private secret world. So this laptop that seemingly set Robert's murder in motion contained materials that revealed Anthony's involvement in the Ku Klux Klan. It was the personal laptop of Graham McNeil, a 43-year-old teacher and counselor at Pittsworth State High School, where he served as sort of a mentor to Anthony, a year 11 student. Graham was also a leader in an Australian branch of the Ku Klux Klan, and his laptop contained Klan speeches he'd written, order forms, which exposed the names of other Klan members, and emails with other Klan officers. And this laptop was in Anthony's possession. Yeah, the teacher had given it to him. We don't know why. Robert discovered the laptop and its clan-related contents, but it seems at first he was primarily concerned about his brother's welfare. When Robert confronted Anthony over family dinner, he urged his brother to end his relationship with Graham, the teacher, and all affiliations with the clan. So Robert was threatening to share what he found with police if Anthony didn't follow through. He also revealed that he had already told some of his friends about what he had learned, kind of adding some pressure. Now, Anthony is someone who his psychologist described as valuing secrecy and control above all things. He was used to manipulating and threatening people to get what he wanted, 
but Robert was always invincible to his intimidation tactics. And the laptop incident was a breaking point in the brothers' relationship where Anthony made the leap to rationalizing murder. He would explain afterward that he believes murder is justified to protect important secret information and that he would do it again to a friend or family member in the same circumstances. Anthony even went so far as to say that he probably would have warned a friend before murdering them, but he didn't warn Robert because, well, then he might have prepared and prevented it. And he didn't feel as emotionally connected with Robert as he did with his friends. In the end, Anthony wouldn't say that he felt Robert deserved to die, but that he was justified in killing Robert because he, quote, couldn't keep his mouth shut. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think that's a justification. (laughs) It's really not. So in 2006, Anthony had stolen a key to his father's gun safe, quote, as a precaution so that I had access to a firearm in case it was necessary to be used. So that's a full year beforehand, before he made this hit list. He's been thinking about this for a while. On Sunday, July 15, 2007, After Robert's threat to reveal his and Graham McNeil's KKK involvement, Anthony used that stolen key. He selected a .243 caliber rifle, and he chose the heavy caliber because he felt it would be more effective for the horrible act he was about to commit against his brother. It was a chilly winter's day, and Robert was working on his car in one of the farm sheds. Robert was into cars racing. This is where you can normally find him. And while he was tinkering under the hood, Anthony walked up behind him and shot him in the back of the head. He said, his head exploded like a watermelon when I pulled the trigger. Robert was dead with that first shot, and he slumped to the ground. I shot him a second time to make sure he didn't suffer. The boy's father, John Rowlingson, would later say, it was an execution, not a shooting. He did yeah, he shot him in the back. Yeah, totally, totally unsuspecting, no confrontation, no, no words. Was the family, I mean, because he had gotten into some trouble, it was never, I'm just thinking in terms of locking up their firearms, that was never on their radar that that would be something they had to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had a lock on, I mean, clearly, because he had a key. But in terms of changing the lock or putting the firearms in a different location, that was never on their radar. Correct. They never, he never actually acted out violently, just had the interest. Anthony realized that he couldn't make it look like an accident after that second shot. So that's why he said he began cleanup efforts. I don't know if he ever intended to make it look like an accident, but that's one of the things he told police. He used a forklift that they had on the farm to load Robert's body into the trunk of his car, the one that he had been working on. Next, Anthony used some sand to try to cover up the blood that had pooled on the dirt ground. Anthony reflected during his confession that he failed in the cleanup effort leading to his arrest. And that's what he would do differently if given the chance. Not, I wouldn't kill my brother if I had more time to think. I would have cleaned up differently so I wasn't caught. And did Graham McNeil, the teacher, the leader of this KKK faction, was he aware that Anthony was planning on doing this? Well, it depends on who you ask. (laughs) After Anthony did all this cleanup, the next person he contacted was Graham McNeil. So Graham was a math and science teacher, and he also counseled troubled youths at Pittsworth State High. He was a mentor to some of them, providing his personal phone number and email address should they have a need to contact him outside school hours. Don't do that. (laughs) That is correct. That's a red flag. 
Anthony Rowlingson was one such student Graham had taken under his wing, and his parents appreciated Anthony having a supportive role model who made him feel positive about school. They were not only grateful for Graham, they trusted him with their son. Anthony says he and Graham had an understanding, and he asked Graham to meet him at a bakery in Pittsworth to discuss a problem he needed Graham to help him deal with. When they met and Graham got into the passenger seat, Anthony said, the problem is in the boot, referring to Robert's body in the trunk of the car. This is when he says he told Graham what he had done. The pair drove to a bridge on the Clifton-Laburn Road about 40 minutes from the family farm. Together, they threw Robert's body off the bridge into the floodway. On their return trip, they stopped at a public restroom to wash themselves off. They had blood all over them. Anthony offered Graham a bullet casing as a memento. I'm not sure if he kept it, but Graham did share that detail with police. Graham advised Anthony, quote, to destroy whatever information he had on me. I asked him to do this because I didn't want that information getting into other people's hands. Now, I think he's referring to the KKK stuff on the laptop. I made it clear that in my position, if that is found out, it's going to cause a lot of problems for me and my family. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Why didn't he ask for the laptop back? I mean, this is a, how old is Anthony at this point? Seven. He's 16. 16 year old boy. And mm-hmm. and he's saying, oh, just get rid of all the. Destroy it. Destroy it. Like, why wouldn't he just take it back mm. and destroy it himself? You're probably a little bit more guilty than you're letting on. The next day, a Monday, Anthony went to school and Graham went to work at Pittsworth State High as if they hadn't just disposed of a corpse together the night before. So John and Wendell Rawlingson, the parents, had been in a friend's house when their son was murdered. And when he still wasn't home on Monday morning, they assumed that he had spent the night with friends. Concern grew when Robert didn't show up for work on Monday. And then one of his friends found his abandoned car on a back street in Pittsworth. And they were pretty suspicious because there was a shovel in the backseat, too. Around the same time, John Rowlingson noticed that the forklift had been moved and he saw blood on it. He also found the pools of blood covered with sand and a spent rifle casing near a farm shed. So when Anthony got home from school, John questioned him about what he found. And Anthony told him he shot a cat. There was a lot of blood and you don't need a forklift to clean up a cat. So John didn't believe him. And the mother, Wendell, her maternal instincts were telling her that Anthony had something to do with Robert's disappearance. So they called the police. The police picked Anthony up for questioning the next day, Tuesday, July 17, after school, just two days after the murder. Anthony would later say that at this point, he already knew he was, quote, done for, but that he enjoyed seeing how far he could string authorities along before they figured it out. So Anthony first told police that he was with a girlfriend when Robert went missing, but he didn't have a girlfriend who could confirm that alibi. Ah, the fake girlfriend. (laughs) So next, he told police that three men in balaclavas had shown up to the farm, beat him up, and were asking for Robert. They didn't believe that either, obviously. So shortly after that, Anthony said he felt the time was right and finally confessed to the murder. Before he would reveal the location of Robert's body, Anthony attempted to make a deal to hide Graham's involvement. Now we're going to do some interviewing here. Trish, would you like to be the police officer? I would. Okay. Well, are you prepared to show us where he is now? Perhaps, although I am not sure it is the right time in the game. Well, this is not a game. We're talking about the murder of your brother. We need to know if you will talk to us further about this, because we need to get a justice of the peace back here so we can interview you properly. 
Well, I may be willing to assist, but I would like you to do something for me. I am in possession of some incriminating information about a colleague of mine, and if you give me a guarantee that you will destroy it, I will show you where my brother is and tell you everything. (laughs) I'm a bit gobsmacked, I gotta be (laughs) honest with you, because I'm kind of like, you're 16 years old and you are not the smartest person in the room. He's kind of a dumb teenager. Yes. Acting like he's like he knows everything. Right. (laughs) I mean, you're a sociopath, but oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. This is very much like a budding sociopath. Police did not negotiate with Anthony, and they were still able to recover Robert's body that same day. So Anthony still told them. Did he tell them about when he he makes this get rid of this incriminating evidence? Did he tell them where it was and what it was? Not right away. Even though Anthony didn't implicate Graham McNeil initially, police discovered through phone records that Anthony had called him after Robert's murder. So that's when they started questioning about Graham. That's how they eventually pieced together the laptop. When they interviewed Graham, he admitted to his involvement, but he initially claimed that he only helped Anthony because he was afraid of what Anthony could do to him. So he said, you know, I got in this car with this teenager. He's telling me he just killed his brother. So I just helped him because I was terrified. But he didn't explain why he didn't go to police afterwards to tell them what happened. He just continued to keep silent. And went about his day. Right. Went to school the next day. Went to work. Anthony contended that he fantasized about killing Robert long before he crossed paths with Graham McNeil. He was adamant about this. But Anthony's parents believe Graham was the major influence and perhaps the only reason that Anthony killed his brother. In fact, they believe Graham may have ordered Anthony to do it so that it it might have been something that the KKK wanted to be done. Anthony told his dad, quote, he did not hate his brother, but that he had been told he had a month to do it. The Rowlingsons expressed a feeling of betrayal toward the man they trusted as Anthony's mentor and role model. Once the particulars of this crime were sorted out, the key issue becomes how much responsibility lies with Anthony Rowlingson, who, even though he's pretty cuckoo, is a minor, versus his teacher and the influence of the Ku Klux Klan's extreme ideology. To analyze that properly, I felt I needed to understand a little bit more about the Klan, how it operates in Australia, what its goals are, and then learn how Anthony and Graham and their crime against Robert fit into that dark world. So I promise we're not going on a deep dive here, but I'm going to give you the highlights if all you know is, is very little about the Klan. So the Klan was formed by Confederate veterans in the wake of the American Civil War. It did begin as kind of a social group, but some members quickly took extreme measures in reaction to Reconstruction-era politics. They felt threatened, punished, otherwise, you know, targeted by the laws that were going on at the time. This is reactionary. We see it today with some of our far right or left politics that are just extremely reactionary to policies. Early activities included targeted violence against African Americans, including murder, voter intimidation, all in an attempt to maintain or regain control of the southern United States from the federal government. So that's the core foundation. This morphed into the Klan that we recognized today, a highly secretive 
terrorist group whose aim is to purify society, in their words, according to their white supremacist values. Their iconic white robes and hoods were designed both to disguise members' identities, they're incredibly secretive, and also intimidate the public. They've made repeated attempts to legitimize their activities by aligning with conservative and far-right political groups, as well as Christian religious groups. Although, for the most part, they all denounce that affiliation, those, those other groups. More recently, the Klan has aligned itself with neo-Nazism. They haven't necessarily disaligned themselves and anti-Islamist views. Membership in the United States is probably around a few thousand at any given time with limited international reach. This I didn't know. It's impossible to pinpoint an accurate number because of the member's secrecy, and the Klan uses the fear tactic of overinflating their membership counts. In 1995, the Klan started online forums and marketplaces, and the internet made it easier for the Klan to expand its reach beyond the United States. Chapters exist in South Africa, Mexico, Brazil, Cuba, the United Kingdom, Germany, Australia, and New Zealand. Before the Ku Klux Klan tried to establish a foothold in Australia in the late 1990s, there were already violent fundamentalist groups operating in Queensland. These were Christian Identity, Neo-Nazis, the League of Rights. Australian police reports detail attackers claiming to be Klansmen, targeting Aborigines and Jews back through the 1980s with harassments, shootings, beatings. In 2007, residents in Toowoomba, the area where this takes place, were among those in three Queensland cities to be targeted with pamphlets promoting Klan membership. The materials came from the United States, and I'm not sure exactly how they were distributed, but all the articles said they were distributed around town. After Graham McNeil's arrest made headlines, Toowoomba police said nothing significant had come of the pamphlet investigation and that there hadn't been any Klan-related problems since. This would be the time that these pamphlets are going around is the same year that this murder takes place. So the activity is increasing around the same time. Regional residents around that time also reported personal encounters with Klansmen, some of them teenagers like Anthony, driving around with hoods and robes on, harassing them with racial slurs, throwing eggs at homes. Residents also recalled receiving recruitment letters and racist leaflets, unsolicited, and even observing farmhouse Klan meetings. So how much of this really happened versus, you know, people getting hyped up on the rumor mill? I don't know. But we know that Anthony was involved. One longtime Pittsworth resident downplayed the Klan concerns, saying, quote, just because we had one bizarre individual living here, referring to Graham McNeil, doesn't mean Pittsworth should be painted as a racist hillbilly town. Pittsworth is a very racially tolerant town. The teacher was, unfortunately, a dangerous eccentric. As I researched more, I found that perhaps Australians are wary of the potential Klan activity in their communities because of its ties to the national far-right political parties that also cropped up in the late 1990s. And these cropped up in the areas of Pittsworth, Queensland, rural areas. These parties, primarily One Nation and Australia First, have been criticized for their racist rhetoric, anti-immigration policies, intolerance of multiculturalism, one Nation and Australia First are just two of several far-right parties competing for political power in Australia, and there are organized youth movement elements to each of them. Paul Coleman, a founding member of One Nation, was ousted from the party in 1999 after he publicly shared that he was the leader of KKK operations in Australia and actively recruiting members through online forums. 
So we know Anthony was active on the internet, late night binges with video games and the computer. Was he in these forums? We don't know, but possible. At the same time, Australia's defense minister started acting on reports that Australia's military, both veterans and those serving, had joined clan branches in three states, including Queensland. Australia's immigration minister was warning traveling clansmen that they would face tougher security measures when they tried to visit the country. In 2009, David Palmer, the new head of Australia's clan operations, reignited fears when he said that several clansmen were secretly members of Australia First. He said the clan isn't interested in actually registering as a party. Our main idea was we would move in and take back what we consider our Aryan parties. The Klan is a white pressure group, a white social group for white families, but also a reserve in case the ethnics get out of hand and they need sorting out. Australia First Leadership denied any such infiltration. So (laughs) Graham McNeil would have been in his early 30s when the Klan began actively recruiting Australian members. He was born and educated in Brisbane, earning a bachelor's degree and teaching diploma from the Queensland Institute of Technology. And while he embarked on his teaching career, he also became an ordained minister and preached at the non-denominational Cross of Christ ministry in a rural area west of Toowoomba. Neighbors in his tiny town of Kambuya thought of him as a model citizen at the time and remembered that he liked to be called reverend. Graham took a brief hiatus from teaching to start up a computer repair business, but that was unsuccessful. In 2001, he returned to teaching at Pittsworth State High School, where he met Anthony Rowlingson. At the same time, Graham was leading a double life as a supreme chaplain in the Ku Klux Klan. An imperial cluck is the name for what he was, and one of his relatives was also a member. After assessing Graham's influence over Anthony and Anthony's mental fitness for trial, a court-appointed psychologist who examined him said, Anthony would, I believe, have been susceptible to influence by the teacher, and this could have fostered an interest in the Ku Klux Klan. It may have also acted to enhance his feelings of specialness and acted to harden a developing anti-authoritarian trait and possibly of callousness. Any influence would not have extended to a point where Anthony would have been unaware of the wrongfulness of his actions. It may have acted to distort his beliefs about his justification in acting as he did. Do they know or did they ever look into Graham specifically wanting to work in a school system just for that purpose to have access to young men who could be easily influenced? It doesn't seem like they did to me. We're going to talk in a second about how he pled guilty. It does not seem like they thoroughly investigated him like I feel they should have or that they're treating him like I feel they should have, given his role as a teacher. It does seem like there was a heightened amount of clan activity at the time. And yeah, maybe he didn't get into the teaching for that reason, but he was certainly using his role as a teacher to influence these troubled teenagers. Did they find any other teenagers that were involved with the organization? No, because it's highly secretive. And to our knowledge, none of them killed anybody like Anthony did. So did they ever find the laptop and all the names of the members? Ooh, that's a good question. They never mention actually seeing the laptop. My assumption is that Anthony did destroy it. Anthony or Graham, somebody destroyed it. On August 8, 2008, so a full year after the murder, 
Anthony Rowlingson pled guilty. He said he did this to save his parents from being dragged through a trial and the subsequent media badgering. He had an answer for everything he did. He had been deemed mentally fit to instruct his counsel and assume full responsibility for his actions. Anthony knew that killing his brother was wrong, but he didn't show any remorse for it. He felt justified in his actions and only, like I said, only regretted his failures in covering it up. On September 15, Anthony received a life sentence for murder with a minimum of 15 years before he would be eligible for parole. He was also charged with a few other crimes and given concurrent sentences. He got nine months for interfering with a corpse, three months for unlawful use of a motor vehicle, and 12 months for stealing. The stealing charge stemmed from an incident the same week as the murder, when Anthony stole two vehicle registration plates from a car dealership in a nearby town and hid them in a briefcase in his room. There's no explanation why he did this, but that leads me to wonder what he was planning to do beyond his brother's murder. Well, he had that hit list. He had the hit list. He was credited with 426 days of time served during pre-sentencing custody and instructed that he would serve most of his time in an adult correctional facility. He accepted all of this. In addition to the sentencing, the judge in Anthony's case allowed for his name to be published despite the fact that he was a minor when he committed the crime. And this was for two reasons. Chiefly, Anthony presents a future violent risk. So it's important that members of his community can identify him and know what he's capable of if he is ever released, which could be this year. The other issue was that Anthony's parents wished for privacy. And this argument that the judge made interested me. She said, all their friends and all of the people who know them will know about this in any event. There will be nothing new about that. So they didn't see any reason why his name should be kept private. Anthony's attorneys unsuccessfully appealed this ruling in December of 2008. They said the sentencing was too extreme. They asked for a sentence of 12 to 13 years instead. The judge stood by the life sentence describing Robert's murder as cold-blooded, premeditated, cowardly, heinous. He said it was in the worst category of murders. He listed Anthony's lack of remorse and his attempt to fool the police and his family as examples of behavior supporting a life sentence. He also noted that the sentence imposed on the applicant should mark the community's denunciation of fratricide. So we got to let everybody know we don't want brothers killing brothers, that it's horrible, and that Anthony poses a real and continuing danger to the community. Psychologists' assessments of Anthony's personality also persuaded the court. They ultimately concluded that he posed a moderate high risk of committing another murder in the future. I'd say so. I'm not an expert. I'd say so. Anthony was diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and oppositional defiance disorder at age 10. These are treatable disorders, and his impulsive behaviors were rarely present outside of school. Robert's murder was premeditated, targeted violence, not an impulsive heat-of-the-moment attack. So the argument that Anthony could be treated was kind of a moot point when it came to this sentencing. That was not an excuse. Experts said even as an older teen, Anthony met the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. And they're they're very reluctant to diagnose teenagers that way. But he has a grandiose sense of self-importance and entitlement. He's interpersonally exploitative. He lacks 
empathy for others. They reported that he also displays some antisocial and schizoid personality characteristics, stopping short of assigning a clear motive because Anthony was always cagey. He never said, Graham made me do it or the laptop made me do it. He acted like it was many factors leading up to Robert's murder. They also listed Anthony's unhealthy interest in violence, the resentment and jealousy that he held toward his brother since early childhood, and the fact that he felt Robert violated his private secret world. By Anthony's own admission, though, he would kill someone else who threatened his sense of control or who got in the way of an important goal of his. He doesn't feel that what he did was wrong, but he recognizes that it was wrong by society's viewpoint. Anthony will override rules and laws for his own personal interests, construing situations in such a way that it justifies his use of violence. Psychologists even went so far as to say, don't try to provide therapy. Don't try to correct his behavior by getting him to empathize with people. That's never going to work. He won't empathize. You have to focus on rewards and consequences to Anthony. So tell Anthony how not killing people will benefit him. Tell Anthony how killing people will harm him. Anthony has stated that he doesn't view his prison sentence as a punishment. (laughs) Graham McNeil's case was handled separately, and in May 2010, he pled guilty for his role in Robert Rowlingson's murder and for making false statements to the police. Graham was only sentenced to eight years for being an accessory after the fact of murder, and he was paroled after three. He moved in with his parents in Pittsworth in 2013, and he was still living there as of 2015. So he's not working in the school anymore, I would imagine. I don't know for sure. There's no way. There's no way. Well, listen to this. Graham was only banned from teaching for five years. So as of 2015, if he wanted to, he could reapply for his teaching license. It's unclear what's happened to Graham in the years since then. But in response to public outcry over this ruling, they didn't change it. But leadership in Queensland launched a task force to assess and reduce the risk of racist activity within the state schools. So Australia listeners, if you know what Graham McNeil is up to, let us know. Because no, he should not be teaching ever again in his life. He should be not around kids. John and Wendell Rowlingson, they continue to maintain a supportive relationship with Anthony, visiting their son in prison every month. They're hopeful that he will be released in 2023. I haven't seen anything about parole hearings. We will keep you updated on that. But again, Australia listeners, if you see anything, let us know. If you see something, say something. They also have a daughter, an older sister to the Rowlingson brothers, but she's been kept completely out of the spotlight on this one. Dreams of continuing that family farm... They're gone now. They sold the land once those painful memories became too much to bear. John and Wendell, they lost two sons in 2007, and they blamed the influence of that extreme ideology from Anthony's trusted mentor at his impressionable age. They do blame their son, but they, they see it as the KKK influence. And in the divisive and violent political climate that we've had these past several years, I think it's easier to understand than it was back in 2007, the influence of the Klan or other groups like them on troubled youths. But that still doesn't excuse what Anthony did to his brother in the eyes of the law. Whether he's paroled in the coming year or not, it may be wise to heed experts' warnings about Anthony's risk of reoffending. The judge said during Anthony's 2008 appeal, his quote, 
conduct and his attitude to his offending is not explicable as a consequence of the manipulation of an immature young man, either by his teacher or by the baleful influence of the Ku Klux Klan. The reports of the psychiatrist and psychologist afford no support for such a suggestion or for any confidence that his deficits in terms of empathy will be overcome as he grows older. So perhaps it will depend on whether Anthony, now a man in his 30s, has changed since 2007. Does he still feel justified for executing his brother or does he feel remorse? Is he still protecting Graham McNeil? Is he still active with the Klan or other white supremacy groups behind bars? That's a potential, you know, at least in American prisons, those run rampant. We'll leave that up to the Australian courts to decide. With the opinions of Anthony's parents, who are the two living victims of this crime, alongside the expert opinions. I just don't know. That's a tough one. Yeah, I would be concerned only because, I mean, everything, he's narcissistic. He lacks empathy. I'm thinking, okay, is we dealing with a sociopath? He's never going to be empathetic. No. And he'll always justify his decisions as to something else. I mean, I would be very concerned if he was released, I would imagine he'd go live with his parents as they still keep in touch with him. But those parents were also on his kill list. Mm -hmm. They were there. There's a special that I link in the show notes from Channel 9. It's the dark side from a show called Inside Story, an investigative true crime documentary type show where they cover this case. And John Rallingson is interviewed and you just feel so much for him. You can tell that they are a good family and that they raised their kids well. And that this really is one of those cases where you're like, wow, nature is definitely at play here because the brothers were so opposite. And it it's enough. They're such a good loving family that it makes you wonder, wow, if if Graham McNeil hadn't come into the picture, would Anthony's life had taken a different course? But then you, you, the words that he says, you think even with Graham McNeil's influence, this was somebody who it could have been anybody came in and just put that little extra bit in his mind. And he or did he just commit an offense sooner than later? Right, correct. Because right, all of that stuff with his brother had been brewing all of those years, right? What was going to be the trigger that made him go? What an interesting case. All right. Sad. It is sad. Sad and interesting. All right. Well, thank you. Well, everybody, if you like that case, let us know. Australian listeners, Wendy asked some questions. So if something comes out that we're not on top of, please reach out to us and let us know so we can share it with everybody. So if you've liked this case, all that we'd ask is that uh, whatever platform you listen to us on, subscribe and uh, share it with a friend. We would greatly appreciate it or leave us a review. So as always, if you see something, say something, you might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. I'm not really sure in this case, because really, it was Anthony who who really kind of gave everything up for the most part, even though he was cagey and thought he was playing a sophisticated game of cat and mouse. Mm -hmm. The police were able to still find Robert's body and move forward with a successful prosecution. I guess if if you know a someone working with children, teacher or otherwise giving out their personal contact info, meeting kids outside of school, that's a big red flag. <laughs> that's not on the up and up. So as always, we want you to be safe out there. We are starting out 2023. We all want to make it a good year. We hope to bring you some interesting cases moving forward, just like this one. Mm-hmm. So as always, we want you to be safe out there, but we also need to look out for one another and be a little more kind to one another. So until next time, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.